You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to John's Gospel, to John chapter 2. We'll begin reading this morning with verse 13. We're going to read through verse 22. John chapter 2, verse 13 through 22. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you this morning. We require your blessing if we are to profit from this word and this reading of your word. Oh, Father, we pray that you would bless each of us this morning, that you would open our eyes and our ears. Oh, Father, you would speak to us in such a way that we would not hear the voice of a man, but we would hear your voice. So speak to us, O oh, Father, through your word. Speak, O oh, Father, to each of our hearts, that which we most need to hear, O oh Lord. Comfort us, we pray. Encourage us. Rebuke us if necessary. Correct us, O oh Lord. But make us like your Son. Make us more Christ-like, O oh Father. Give to us, O oh Father, growth and grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Well, last time we began with verse 13, and last time we only went as far as verse 17, and that was because I really wanted to emphasize uh, zeal. You know, I, can, I was thinking this morning how I might introduce this message, and I kept thinking of um, a professor that I had, uh, Dr. Ed Robeson, and how blessed I was to have professors that were nearly at the end of their uh, teaching career. And someone will say, well, why is that such a blessing? It's such a blessing because I was able to bask in wisdom that had been acquired for 30 and 40 years of ministry. Nothing against the new professors that were coming in. Uh, they, they were quite a blessing too. But, uh, you know, men like Dr. Robeson and men like Dr. Wayne Spear, what a blessed soul he is. And it was uh, Denny Proutot. These men are now retired. And, and uh, what a blessing it was to, uh, to sit under their 
uh, their teaching and to hear their stories, to hear their struggles, their trials, and the things that they have gone through. And one of the things that Dr. Robeson shared with us, you know, and it was in response, I think, to a question, as I remember. I think one of the students, one of my fellow students, asked Dr. Robeson, what do we preach on? How do we determine what we're to preach on? Of course, everyone understood it was prayer, you know. But Dr. Robeson offered this insight. He says, preach on what you're thinking about. Preach on what you're thinking on. That served me well for 35 years. Preach on what you're thinking on and preach on it prayerfully. And that's been what I've done ever since I've heard those words. And I was, as I was reading the passage last week, I just kept being struck by Christ's zeal. And especially verse 17, zeal for your house will consume me. A quote from David out of Psalm 69. And just what a tremendous passage of Scripture that is. And that was our, that was our goal last week. You know, last week we saw that Jesus, he traveled from Capernaum down into, down into Jerusalem to observe the Passover. And, you know, just briefly, I always like to, when, whenever we talk about the Passover, I like to always just briefly remind us what exactly is the Passover, what exactly is it about. It's probably the most significant of all the Jewish festivals on the Jewish calendar. And it was to be observed once a year. Uh, in fact, the Lord instituted that annual observance uh, as it was taking place. And, of course, it commemorates uh, Israel's being delivered out of Egypt, does it not? You know, the tenth and final plague uh, uh, involved the killing of the firstborn in Egypt. And the Lord called Moses to tell the faithful, listen, uh, take a lamb according to my specification, slaughter it, paint its blood on the lintel of your, of your house and on the doorpost, and the angel of destruction will pass over your house. I never get tired of saying those words because it's such a graphic illustration of Christ, isn't it? And how by his death going in our place, we can be passed over the destruction that would otherwise surely await us. And of course, this is, to be, this is to be commemorated annually. Why? So that future generations can get the significance of it. So future generations will come to know and understand it. So the Passover is at hand. This requires pilgrims all over the Holy Land to migrate into Jerusalem for this week because the, the festivities, the, uh, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread would follow this and here they're coming into town. Jesus comes into town. In verse 14, he enters into the, the temple precincts, and he finds those selling oxen, sheep, pigeons, and money changers sitting there. And briefly, I commented on that last week. What was the, what was the deal with all of that? It was a, a matter of convenience, actually. It was... Uh, uh, there, there were a number. There was a whole battery of sacrifices. If we were, if we were going to observe the Passover, if we were going to travel into Jerusalem, we would be required to bring all of these uh, sacrifices with us. Furthermore, we'd be required to uh, bring. Uh, we'd be required to pay a temple tax. Um, so, out of convenience, uh, these merchandisers set up and they began to sell. Uh, suitable sacrifices so you didn't have to travel. Imagine traveling with oxen, you know. Some of us have been going on trips this summer. Did you take your oxen with you? They say, no, we left them at home. Uh, you would still be traveling if you had taken your oxen with you. Uh, so it was a matter of convenience. This in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, were there shady business practices taking place? I think we can probably for sure say yes. 
But again, if I were to preach this morning on shady business deals, I think I'd be missing the whole point of this text. The point of the text is where they're doing it. Where are they doing it? They're doing it in the temple area. Almost with certainty, they're doing it in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And this is a place where worship is to be taking place. And as I said last week, imagine trying to worship at the fair down by the 4-H club. You know, it's fun to go to the fair, fun to go down by the 4-H club and see all the animals, but not a good place for worship. So Jesus comes in, he discovers, he sees all of this. Verse 15, he makes a whip of cords, he drives them all out of the temple uh, with uh, sheep and oxen, and he pours out the coins of the money changers. Imagine that, he overturns the tables. He takes their, their, their money bags, if you will, and he, he dumps them out. Uh, can you imagine um, somebody just coming in and doing that? Uh, this is what he does, and then, then he indicts them in verse 16. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. You see, that's the issue. And as I said last week, they're robbing God of his glory. This is the place where if we were traveling into Jerusalem, this is where I think for the most part all of us would be trying to worship. It would be very difficult to worship because we're not worshiping. God is being robbed of the glory that otherwise would be taking place. And then verse 17, we see his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is full of zeal for the glory of the Father. That is what he is full of zeal for. Now this week, we continue on verse 18. And there you see the Jews. The Jews confront Jesus in verse 18. These are probably uh, the temple police, if you will, if we might use a modern term, uh, the temple police along with members of the Sanhedrin. Uh, they approach Jesus. They say to him, What's, what sign do you do for showing us these things? Now, in part, this is not wrong. I mean, I mean uh, this disruption taking place, uh, it is their assignment uh, to see the things go well, but <laughs> this shouldn't even be going on in the first place. And it's interesting that they ask for a sign and again, if you've done like I've done many times, if you've read the New Testament by starting with Matthew, you read through Matthew, then you read Mark, then you read Luke, then you read John. Some of you have done that because some of you have come to me and said, man, you, you, you see many of the stories over and over again, don't you? I'm like, yeah, uh, you do, uh, many of the stories over and over again. But if you've done that in Matthew, you'll remember there's a number of places in Matthew where the opponents of Jesus are asking for a sign. Uh, Matthew 12, you don't need to turn or just write it down or something. If you want examples, Matthew 12 is one place. Matthew 16 is another place. And Jesus responds to this desire uh, in uh, Matthew 16, 4. He, he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for or a sign. Now, why does Jesus say that? Well, because he's given many signs. First of all, there's no want of a sign. Uh, not in John 2, nor in Matthew 12, nor in Matthew 16. In fact, someone might say, well, where's the sign in, 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 in John 2? Where is the sign? Well, Jesus single-handedly cleared the place. 
That should, have, that should have suited. In fact, the fact that they answer these things, and the fact, you know, D.A. Carson points out in his commentary, the fact that they're asking this question altogether realizes that they have some suspicion that they're dealing with a prophet here. Because they just say, hey, what do you think you're doing? They say, what sign? What sign do you give us? You know, what this comes down to is not the one of a sign. What it comes down to is the heart, and a heart that is simply unwilling to believe. We could probably stop right here for a moment and tease that out a little bit. Um, Because, you know, if you've done ministry for any length of time, if you're out sharing the gospel and you're trying to share the gospel, it's really only a matter of time before, you know, especially if you're doing it prayerfully, and please do it prayerfully, always do it prayerfully, if you're doing it prayerfully, you're going to have, you're going to have these, if you haven't already, you're going to have these wonderful experiences where you're sharing the gospel with somebody and it's like the words are just coming out of your mouth and you can't even believe they're coming out of their mouth this way. I mean, it's like you're giving the very best presentation that you've ever given in your life. And you think to yourself, that is so convicting and so convincing. Surely this is going to be the day that my loved one here comes to faith. And you finish and they look at you and they say something that's completely unrelated to what you've been talking about. Has anybody ever had that experience? And it's almost like, Phew. Now, is this due to an inability intellectually to understand what you have just said? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Nope. Or we can zero in a little closer You've given the same presentation, and you think to yourself, this is going to, this is so convicting, this is so convincing. And they say something like, well, where'd Adam get his wife? What does that got to do with what I've just shared with you? It's a diversion. It's a distraction. This is what our fallen hearts do when we're confronted We're going to see it again in John chapter 4. You know, these things, you know, John introduces these things. It's like, I hate to say the dolphins. I've heard so much about the dolphins. I used that illustration, I think, in the first message in John, in our study of John. I I don't know why I did it, but I did it, and it's already out 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 of the bag. But, you know, you go to the beach, and you look out, and you see the school of dolphins, and uh, you'll see, you don't see all of them. They don't all jump out at once, but one will jump out, and then maybe behind it, two will jump out, and another one will jump out. But they're always right there in that area. And these, these, uh, these, these uh, doctrines and these things in John's gospel, you know, John doesn't, John doesn't write like a systematic theology where he writes, okay, we're going to do the, we're going to do the doctrine of scripture. And then this is going to be, this is going to be pages one through 28. And then pages 29 through 56 are going to be the doctrine of God. And that's not the way John writes. John's got all these things running uh, kind of at once. And this is one of those things. When Jesus uh, uh, speaks with the woman in Samaria, you'll see when we get there where she's distracting. She's diverting as Jesus speaks with her. And, of course, this idea of a sign, uh, this is a diversion. It's a distraction. And let me, let me flesh it out just a little bit further before we move because some of us, this will bring it just a little bit closer to home. Even after you come to faith, our the remnant of our sins still continues to war against what God is doing in our life, doesn't it? 
And one of the ways it wars is when you find yourself in a situation where you know you can make all kinds of excuses, but you know your heart isn't right in this particular situation. And you know you need to change it, but you don't want to. Has anybody found themselves in that situation before? I know my heart ain't right here. I can make excuses, and I've been making excuses, but they don't, they don't pass muster. But what about this? What about this? What about this? Right, we're committing the same crime here. We're committing the same crime here. Whereas what we should do is say, Lord, my heart is not right here. My heart attitude is wrong. Uh, work in me, create in me a clean heart, O oh Lord. I mean, try that. And I can tell you from experience, things will go way, way better. They go way, way better. They're asking for a sign. Verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Uh, Jesus gives them a puzzling response in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, for us, I mean, we can look in this and we, can, we, we know the end of the story. So a lot of the mystery, you know, the enigma, if I might use that word, uh, is, is missing for us because we know how it ends. But let's, if we can, try to put ourselves back in the story. Uh, this is how Jesus often answers his opponents when they're carrying around hearts that are unwilling to believe, isn't it? He answers them with these parables, if you will. He'll answer, him, answer them with these enigmatic statements, if you will. We might even think of uh, Matthew 13. Keep your place in John 3 and look at Matthew 13 with me. In Matthew 13, Jesus is he's telling a number of parables, parable of the sower, he's the uh, parable of the, uh, the weeds, the parable of the seed and leaven, uh, parable of the hidden treasure, parable, parable of the pearl of great value. Those are some of my favorites. And his disciples in verse 10, they come to him and they say, why do you speak to them in parables? And notice what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And look what it says here. And their eyes, they have closed. They have closed. Here they have very much so volitionally have determined to close their hearts. They've determined not to believe against all evidence that's before them and in front of them. And Jesus speaks to them in parables. He continues in verse 15, lest their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So back to John chapter 2. Here we see Jesus, he's in character. Uh, these people are coming to him with hearts that are unwilling to believe. They're asking him, what sign do you show us? Jesus has just given them a sign. I mean, clearing that temple, as I said last week, uh, that, 
It's, it's, it's like Jesus removes the veil of his, of his power and his authority. How, does, how do you single-handedly go into that place and, and do the things that Jesus has just done? Now, Jesus answers them with this mysterious statement, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews respond in verse 20. They said, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Now, what they're making reference to is the building campaign that Herod has has. Uh, that has been undergoing now from since about 20 B.C. So for the last 46 years, they've been building, they've been adding on to the temple. They've been making it more extravagant. And in fact, this building campaign hasn't even stopped. We know from the ancient history that the temple wasn't completely completed until 63 A.D., which is just seven years before it was destroyed. Only seven years, only seven years, and it was destroyed. So they say to Jesus, well, it's taken 46 years to build this temple up to what it is now. It's in essence what they're saying. And, and if it's destroyed, you're going to raise it up in three days. And then John interjects and says he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. There in verse 22, we see it's not only his opponents that don't understand. The disciples don't understand either. You know, that should be a comfort to us. And let that be a comfort to us because we read in the Bible things we don't understand. Sometimes maybe we, uh, we sit in a, in a sermon on Sunday mornings and I say things that you're like, I didn't get that. I don't understand that. And uh, listen, I, I, I can appreciate that because I've been there too. I remember sitting in seminary and beginning, mo- beginning most of it, but then there's some of it. It's just, this, this is escaping me. I don't... I don't have a handle on this. I can tell you from experience, and, we can, and I can tell you from the Word of God, stay with it. Hang in there. Don't worry about it. Worry about what the Lord is showing you today. Clutch on to that. Seek Him for the things that you don't understand. He'll turn the lights on when it's His time. He'll turn your ears on when it's this time. Uh, the disciples, they stick with it, and, and in God's time, they get it figured out. Uh, they get it figured out. But uh, back to... What Jesus is saying here, and back to uh, Jesus' response, I think uh, loosely we understand it quite well, but um, I think we fail to really grasp the wonder of what's taking place here. I know I, I have. I've actually, in many places of Scripture, I've actually stopped, and I've actually prayed this way. Lord, I, I can... I can Mentally, I'm getting this, but I'm disturbed by the fact that my heart is not moved as I think it should be. Why, why is the wonder of this eluding me? Lord, work in my heart. Fill me with the wonder of this. And I think when it comes to, to, to passages like this, a lot of it is familiarity, causes us to not be filled with wonder, but I think the, one of the major reasons that we're not full of wonder over this, is because we don't understand the significance of the temple itself. And I want to spend a few minutes just talking about the significance of the temple. Now, first of all, why would I say that? Well, if you read the book of Exodus, you know, if you've ever read the book of Exodus, you know it's full of really wonderful stories. In fact, it reads very quickly, doesn't it? You have these wonderful stories. You know, little baby Moses is put on a little boat, and he floats in the Nile, and his, you know, and... Uh, um, 
uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds him, discovers him, takes him into the palace. He's raised in Pharaoh's palace. And then when he's older, he, he, he kills this Egyptian and he has to flee out of, out of Dodge. And now he's out in the wilderness. He gets married. He's taking care of his father-in-law's sheep, you know. And then he gets called at the burning bush back to, uh, back to Egypt uh, to deliver the, the uh, people of God from, from Egypt. Then you have all of the plagues. And then, you know, you have the deliverance, the crossing of the Red Sea. Then you have the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. And then they begin their wanderings. You know, Moses, there he is out in the desert now, and he's just overwhelmed, and he has his father-in-law's advice. I think in chapter 16, 17, the Amalekites, the water from the, from the, the rock, if you will. Then they make their way into the Sinai region, and then you get the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and then you start getting the regulations, and then you make it to the temple and the furnishings. And what happens to your attention as you get to the temple and the furnishings? You start, start doing this, don't you? And why is that? I think it's because we fail to understand the significance of the temple. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden before the fall. Was there a temple there? Mm -mm. Why? There was no need of a temple. Why is there no need of a temple? Well, because Adam and Eve didn't need a special place where... They could meet with God. They could meet with God anywhere in the, in, the, uh, in the Garden of Eden. The whole garden was open game. There was no need for a battery of purification rituals and sacrifices and what have you. They could meet, they could meet anywhere. But then they rebelled against the Lord, and everything changed. They were cast out of the garden, cast away from the presence of God, and now altars had to be erected, Right? And that's what we find Abraham doing, isn't it? In our study of Genesis, some of you recall um, how many times did Abraham commemorate a certain place and build an altar and offer sacrifices there. And in, in Exodus, uh, God commands Moses to build a tabernacle, doesn't he? And there we get uh, great detail of how this tabernacle is to be uh, built. And uh, the tabernacle would be the place uh, where God would meet with his people. And it, and, and it was meant to be folded up and taken down and moved around, and it was, it was to be kept always in the center of the people of God, wasn't it? You can read about how the, the tribes had their, their place. The Levites would camp near the temple, but the rest of the tribes camped around the temple, or the tabernacle, if you will. But it's not until King Solomon, where an actual temple is built, that King Solomon builds the temple, and that is the place where people went to meet with God. As we see all of these pilgrims coming into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, uh, what is the issue here? Well, the temple represented the presence of God. The temple represented the presence of God. The temple also represented the election of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Who is present at the temple? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's fenced off. It's fenced. God calls Abraham to himself, and through Abraham, he raises up a people who are his, right? To eventually, I mean, he, he chooses Abraham, he chooses Isaac, he chooses Jacob and then the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's always desired that the temple, that he's always desired that the people of God, that the Israelites be a light unto the Gentiles. That's the purpose of that outer court. 
And that's the problem that Jesus is having is that outer court, okay, is being contaminated. It's being overrun with activity that shouldn't belong there. That's the place for the Gentiles. That's the place for those whom God would draw to himself. If we were there, that would be the place uh, for us. So you see there, the temple actually, it, it represents the election of God. Inside were the called and the clean. Outside were the unclean. It also represented the kingship of the Lord. Um, if you, you know, just kind of whet your appetite, if you keep your place in, in John and turn back with me, I want to look at a couple of passages. Look at Exodus. Go to Exodus 25, because this might be the place where you maybe start to get sleepy when you're reading Exodus. Now, I think we can liven this up a little bit. One of these days I like to preach through all of this, and it, it, especially as we begin to see the significance of all of this. Oh, my, this... Um, um, I, w- I would love to study it myself. But let's start with the Ark of the Covenant, which for many of us probably be one of the most interesting of the temple furnishings. Cha- Exodus 25, verse 10. There in verse 10, the Lord commands Moses to make this box, if you will, out of acacia wood. It's given the dimensions. Verse 11, you're to overlay it with gold. Verse 12, you're to put four rings of gold on it. Verse 13, you make these poles. You put the poles in it, verse 14. Verse 15, the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and not be taken out of it. And you are to put in the ark the testimony that I shall give you. And then verse 17, notice this. You shall make a mercy seat, a mercy seat. You hear the old preachers always talking about going before the mercy seat. (laughs) This is what they're making an allusion towards. You make the mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half be its length, and a cubit and a half, its breadth, you shall make two cherubim of gold. These are angelic beings, winged creatures. Uh, they're to make them out of gold. Hammered work shall you make them on two ends of the mercy seat. Verse 19, make one cherub on the one end, one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. Now look at verse 22. There I will meet with you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat... From between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So there the Lord is, above the cherubim, above the mercy seat, if you will. Uh, The ark there representing uh, his presence, but it's also representing his kingship, his kingship. In 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, we find the Lord is enthroned upon the ark, if you will. Or in some texts, he's enthroned upon the cherubim. Uh, what a throne is a place where a king uh, dwells. And if you turn to uh, Psalm 29, which we read at the beginning of our service this morning, I told you this had bearing on the message, especially verses 9 and 10. Psalm 29 There we read, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his what? 
In his temple, all cry glory. Now look at verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Now, obviously, where's the Lord enthroned? Well, he's enthroned in heaven. We could say it that way. But all of heaven can't contain him. That's what Solomon says at the dedication of the temple. All of heaven cannot contain you, much less this house which I have built, is what, is what he says, right? In 1 Kings 8 is what he says. But representative, the Lord is actually enthroned above the cherubim, if you will. So the, the, the temple actually is significant in this respect of the kingship of Almighty God. And because of this, you know, your temple proper had two rooms. One, the holy place. Beyond the holy place, there's a curtain. And through the curtain is the most holy place, the holy of holies. There's where the ark rests, in the holy of holies, the most holy place. And that is understood as the seed of God. Uh, one, one other text. I think, I think this will really drive it home. If you go to Isaiah 6, and it's a passage that many of you are very familiar with. But maybe you've never thought of it this way. Let's go to, with everything I've said about the kingship, if you will, uh, of the temple, the kingship of how it represents the kingship of the Lord, the temple is not king, God is king, but if you, you look at Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, okay, a throne, we might first be inclined at the, okay, this throne is in heaven, it's high and lifted up. But then notice what comes next. And the train of his robe filled what? The temple. You see the imagery that's being used there. The significance of the temple is being the throne, the throne room where Christ is king. Now, back to John chapter 2. I'll say one, one more thing here about the significance of the temple, and that, that's maybe the most obvious is holiness. We were talking about holiness on, on Wednesday night, and I, I, I went about it a little differently than I think I've ever gone about teaching on the holiness of God. We just did an, just a brief little talk on Psalm 5. But let's think about the temple and how the temple would constantly remind us of God's holiness. Because as you're making your way to the temple... You're, for all of us being Gentiles, how close can we get to the temple? We're going to go in so far, and there's going to be a railing on the outside, and that's all the further we're going to be able to go, isn't it? Now, our, our, our Jewish brothers can go beyond that place, but they, they also meet a railing as well, don't they? They can only go so far. Now, the Levites, the priests, if you will, they can go closer, but they also run into a, a, a spot, a line in the sand where they can't go any further. Now, some priests would be permitted to go into the holy place, but only the high priest and only once a year would be able to go into the most holy place. You can read about that in Leviticus 16 if you want this afternoon. On the Day of Atonement, if you will, the priest goes into the most holy place. And furthermore... There's this constant battery of sacrifices and ritual washings. Now, what is that going to be constantly reminding us of? It's going to be constantly reminding us of, of God's holiness, God's holiness, God's holiness. 
So we could say, we could, we, could, we could sum this all up by saying that the temple is where God meets with his people. It's where he receives their praises. It's where he receives their prayers. And it's where he offers forgiveness. Does that make sense? People are traveling into, into Jerusalem, the time of the Passover. And there the temple is. It's the place where God will meet with sinners It's the place where he will receive their praises, their prayers, their contrition, their repentance. It's where he will offer forgiveness of sins, and it's where they will enjoy his presence. There's the significance of the temple. Now, back to Jesus, verse 18, John chapter 2, verse 18. The Jews say to him, what what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answers them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And in verse 21, we're told that he was speaking. We don't have to guess. John tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now, what is that all about? Well, many of us, probably most of us, will know that when Jesus was on the cross, after he said those last words, it is finished, and he breathed his last, a monumental event took place inside the temple. And it was the tearing into of the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. Now, what was the significance of that? The significance of that is that temple then became obsolete. Arguably, if we wanted to fuss over details, we might say, well, it's not until his resurrection. But, okay, but I would say this. Should one single sacrifice have been offered after Jesus went to the cross? Emphatically, we must answer no. What business would we be doing offering a sacrifice after Jesus has already went to the cross. You see, after that final sacrifice, that ends not only all of the sacrifices, but also all the ritual washings and all the purifications and all of that. It ends it. On the third day, as Jesus is raised, I mean, I think this is more for us. The resurrection, what's the resurrection proof? It validates everything that Jesus has come to do and everything that he says. His resurrection, it authenticates that Jesus' offering on the cross was satisfactory to his justice. Now, now, Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the temple. That's what makes what we're doing here this morning possible. Where, where can we go to meet with God? Where can a sinner go to meet with God? Now, we don't have to travel across the world to a, some location somewhere. Where does a sinner go to meet with God? Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Where do we go? Where do we go when we want to pray to the Father? We go, we go to Jesus, don't we? Jesus, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one can even have access to the Father except through me, right? See, John's developing it further in John 14. 
Where, where are our sins forgiven? In Christ. Where are our prayers received? In Christ. Where are our praises received? In Christ. Where are we made holy? In Christ. He is the glorious temple. Is everybody with me? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we so thank you. We so praise you, Father, that you have given us such a glorious temple in Christ Jesus. No, Father, we thank you that we can bow our heads this morning and, and we can look to you only because of our temple, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And as Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. Oh, Lord, as we look to this glorious resurrection, we see our temple being raised. And we can even say as we look to the ascension, we see our temple. Oh, Father, we do thank you. No, Father, we do praise you for this, O Lord, that we don't have to seek some wise man on a hill. We don't have to go seek um, some place. We don't have to make some pilgrimage. O Lord, we can bow our heads before you even now, and we can come and meet in this place and congregate as an assembly, and we can all bow our heads now. And we have perfect access to you through Christ Jesus. Oh, it is in Christ where you hear our, our repentance. You hear our confession. You hear our contrition. You hear the, the groveling and the grumbling of, of the agony that, Father, that fills us as we realize our sin before you and how we have sinned before you. It is in Christ Jesus where we offer words of repentance and our words of repentance are words that need repentance. Our repentance needs repentance. But you are also the place where we're made holy. We could never be holy. We could never make ourselves holy. You make us holy by giving to us your perfect holiness. By accrediting your holiness to our account, we are made holy. Not by the blood of bulls and the blood of oxen and the blood of lambs and pigeons and turtle doves and not by these battery of ritual washings, but by your shed blood, by your death on the cross, you have made us clean and you have made us holy. Oh, Lord, it is in Christ Jesus where we enjoy your presence. It is in Christ Jesus where we where we have all of the promises. They all find their yes. It is in Christ Jesus and through his glorious resurrection where we can, we can see that we can firmly stand upon the word of God, that we can look to a glorious future that will be exactly like Jesus has said it will be, that we can say that in your house there are many mansions, that Jesus has gone to prepare one for us, for each of us. We can look to you and we can, we can say that one of these days you will wipe away. You yourself personally, Jesus, our temple, will wipe away all of our tears. Oh, Lord, a list could go on and on and on. 
Fill our hearts, O Lord, with wonder, with wonder over the earthly temple, that you would go to such great lengths to provide a place for sinners to meet with you, but then how it points to Jesus, our final temple. O Father, fill us with wonder of these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.